to overcome, succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty, defeat of an opponent to prevail, overpower or overwhelm of an emotion, adversity, a difficult or unpleasant situation, used in a sentence, resilience in the face of adversity. I want to break free. Welcome back, everybody, to the Overcoming Adversity podcast. It is episode number 24, I believe. 23 or 24. Honestly, who <laughs> knows anything that's going on anymore with these COVID times that we got going on? What day is it? Nobody what month knows is it? anymore. <laughs> Time doesn't matter. Episode numbers don't matter anymore. None of that matters. We just got to all get by each day. So this is episode fill in the blank. We don't know. But we are happy to be back. It's been a little while since we've recorded an episode. I think we've all been trying to adjust. But I am Blake Cohen. I am one of the hosts of the Overcoming Adversity podcast. And I'm here with Amanda Marino, our other host. Hi, Blake. It's so awesome to be back. Um, you know, we we love our podcast. We love our listeners. And we love sharing, you know, the the hope of people that overcome so many awesome things. And um, you know, Blake and I really definitely got caught up, um, you know, building our business that, you know, the podcast, we've still been doing it, just not as often. And we really, you know, kind of have feel like we really want to make this like a forefront priority because it's just such a, a great thing and so much fun to do. What's been really cool is that, you know, I haven't checked in a while. Uh, Amanda and I started our own company called Next Level Recovery Associates. So we've been very busy with that. It's been, we've been blessed to be able to help a lot of families and be a part of the change process for so many families who are struggling with mental health, addiction, um, and other just basic issues, life issues, stressors that a lot of people face that don't really know how to get over and they need some guidance and some support during the process. So because of that, we I haven't really checked the, uh, the stats for the podcast in quite a while. And I happened to go check uh, two days ago and I was able to see that we've been, people have been listening to us all over the world. Like we have people all over Africa. We have people all over Europe, Asia, uh, really everywhere. That's uh, amazing. People can listen to podcasts. People have been downloading our podcast. We have some loyal followers in like Norway that download every episode, which is shout out to, to whoever you are. We Thank we, you, Norway, in the yeah. house. <laughs> I so, know that you said Australia was another big one. Thank you, Australia. We love you guys. We're yeah. coming to visit you soon when we can. <laughs> Yeah, as soon as we can travel again and not be quarantined for 14 days once we get there, we, uh, we will definitely be out there. But for this episode, we do have an awesome guest that we've, Amanda and I both have been sort of watching on social media and watching these amazing posts and how she really, really speaks her mind um, about what she's been through and is really passionate about helping others. So Amanda, I want you to go ahead and introduce today's guest. Yes. Um, thanks, Blake. You know, and thank you so much, Sherry, for joining us today. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to recover out loud. Um, there's another thing to have like a mission and a purpose behind it. And I, I, I before even meeting or speaking to Sherry, I really felt like she was kind of like my soul sister in that area and that we just had an immediate connection because of our um, our ways that we operate and the way that we come from our heart with what we do and how we reach out and share and educate. And I think that some of the work that we've been able to do in a professional place like LinkedIn has helped educate so many people that not what you think. It's not what you think is the textbook picture of somebody in recovery. It's not, you know, um, people and, and Sherry's huge on second chances and helping people, um, with felonies get employment, you know, and, and I had started a nonprofit for, for women in recovery to um, go back to college because my best friend died of an overdose and she had felonies and she could never get employment. So I wanted to help other women be able to get um, opportunities that my best friend didn't have. And so your mission, Sherry, is definitely near and dear to my heart. And I just can't wait to learn more about you and what you do. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm honored to be on your show and a little bit intimidated because I always wonder if people like you guys are watching my videos and like, oh my God, like she's totally headed towards relapse with what she's <laughs> saying or, you know, because I, I share my journey without thinking about, and I think that's why so many people like and comment because it's relatable, right? I share my right. journey without thinking about being right. 
or saying the right things? Or does this make me look unstable? Like I'll be open and be like, I really want to dream today. (laughs) You know? Right. So um, I I think it's that authenticity that, that really guides people towards you. And there's so many people I've seen, especially on social media. And honestly, at one point I was one of those people who like, didn't really know what to put. I wanted to tell my story online I would only put the good stuff until I realized mm-hmm. like it felt very false at some point. Cause when I was going through hard times, I didn't know what to even post. I felt like I couldn't post the real stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I recognize that it's authenticity. That is truth. And that's what people are attracted to. And that's, what's actually going to help somebody who's struggling. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So I, I applaud you for that. I don't judge things like that for sure. You know, I think that's key. I think that's keeping it real. You know, nobody wants to hear the fluff and the crap, you know? Um, so thank you. Do you guys, where do you live? I live in Dallas, Texas. Sorry. What were you going to say, Blake? No, I was going to say, do you guys feel like when people do post a lot of positivity and it's all about their life and all these different positive things that are happening, it almost makes it seem like what they're doing is unattainable because it doesn't seem real. It just seems like everything is perfect. It's like the social media screenshot of somebody's life where everything is perfect that they're posting. And it almost makes it, it almost makes you feel a little bit hopeless. Like they're, that life is unattainable for ourselves. Oh God, not me. I feel like how miserable must that person be that oh, wow. needs so much outside validation. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I think to myself, holy cow, if they have to always make their life look perfect, I wonder how crappy it, it really is behind closed doors. Yeah, That's how I, I feel. That's a I unique agree. but very valid viewpoint <laughs> to have on that. I I guess what what I'm thinking is like that most people are seeing this and going like, wow, that's the life that I want, but it seems so far away from where I'm currently at. Mm-hmm. I could imagine it's not relatable. Right. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and sometimes I'm now at a point in my life where I, my schedule is really, if you would have told me this would have been my schedule three years ago, that it would have seemed unattainable to me. So if I did just get on social media and tell everyone that I'm at my first recovery meeting at 6 a.m. every morning and I don't miss a workout Monday through Friday by 5 p.m. every day and I'm always in bed by 9 and I read the Bible for an hour a day. Like People will probably be like, that's unattainable. And I do do all those things, but I also speak out about how difficult it is to make sure I do it (laughs) and how much work it really takes. Like I don't just wake up all beautiful and pretty and show up to recovery meetings at 6 a.m. and sunshine and butterflies. Sometimes I'm crying on my way there because I'm so tired and I'm angry that I have to manage this disease and do this work. (laughs) It's really hard work. That's what people don't understand. It's not just a choice to quit drinking or to quit doing drugs. It's actual everyday like labor to stay in recovery. Diligence. Seriously. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying too is so true. Like there's obviously, you know, when you're in recovery, especially early on, you know, maybe your first, let's say like after the first six months on, but in the Mm -hmm. beginning process, like there is a lot of ups and downs. And although you do feel better a lot of the time and life is really great because it's very different than it was before, you could still be doing all the same things like you said that you were doing and you could still have a really bad day. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And it's sometimes it's like the consistency um, and that, you know, accountability that like can pull us through, you know, like I'm sure there's been many moments where even though you've dragged yourself to show up, it's probably been like the, the thing that's helped you. Um, mm-hmm. That consistency, you know, so you live I in was... Dallas, Texas. Are you from there? Yeah, I'm pretty much born and raised out here. We We had a little stint in Georgia, but you know, I was in kindergarten, so I was young, but Texas, I'm a Texas girl all the way. And you're outside of the city because I've been to Dallas city and I was thinking it was more rural in Dallas, but I was kind of like, Oh, this is very city. Like I'm in North Dallas. I did for a few years live in Dallas, Dallas, like right in the heart of the city in a high rise, um, which that was great for my addiction. But (laughs) now I live I live kind of more in the suburbs, <laughs> a, a more peaceful and calm 
lifestyle. Nice. But I've always grew up and lived in and around North Dallas area. So where did the cornbread hustle? What, where did that name come from? So, yeah, my company is called Cornbread Hustle. I started it four years ago. A lot of people start doing the math in their head and thinking, okay, so she started this four years ago, but she's only a year and a half sober. That is true. I was addicted to meth in 2004 through 2007, so the last couple of years of high school. And when I kicked my meth addiction, I thought that I was some expert that could help everybody else. And uh, I wanted to fix other people to avoid fixing my root cause of you know, my addiction. Actually, I didn't even know there was a root cause. I was just like, okay, cool, done with meth. Moving on with life, let me help other people make their life awesome too. Oh, yeah. So I um, started Cornbread Hustle after a series of successful ventures that I had got into. I would say ventures, like a career. I got a great career in the news business, and I was a PR person. I did a lot of great things. I got went on the Steve Harvey show. I felt like I had achieved a level of success where I could help other people who were recovering from a rebellious lifestyle to become entrepreneurial themselves. So started volunteering in prisons and I got the name Cornbread Hustle. I wanted to start a for-profit. I didn't want to go the nonprofit route, even though everyone told me you're crazy. Nobody's going to give you money for felons. Um, and I was crazy. So thank God I was drinking back then because I would have never went through <laughs> this idea. Um, but I, I just, you know, whenever I thought of creating this staffing agency, cause for me, that was the entrepreneurial way to solve an issue staffing agency. I, right. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to name it cornbread. The reason why I wanted to name it cornbread when I used to eat in the chow hall with the guys in prison, because I volunteered in the prison for a few years. And I got really comfortable there where I could just eat in the chow hall with the volunteers. And um, I used to eat like a pig on prison food because for me, you know how addicts are. It's all or nothing. And I was always on a diet, not eating carbs, um, working out because that made me think that I was normal. And um, when I'd go into prison, it, it would be like, okay, you can eat carbs today. So I'd go ham on eating carbs and they'd be like, dang, Sherry, you going to eat your cornbread or what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, we would laugh and it's from a movie called Life with Eddie, Mar uh, Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence. And I, I just decided movie. to name the company Cornbread Hustle. It just came to me one day, a friend, you know, me and her were going back and forth on what I should name the company. And I bought the domain and here we are. I don't know if it's I love it. of, I don't know if it's because of that movie, but when I hear the name Cornbread Hustle, that is what I think of right away is almost like prison or prison reform or just that kind <laughs> yeah. of like southern prison mm -hmm. is what what I picture when you say Cornbread Hustle. Yeah, well, I'm glad I did good on the branding then. <laughs> yeah. For for movie buffs like me, for sure. Yeah. Right away my brain goes right there. Yeah. Great. And that makes me happy. So tell yeah, me I think it's awesome. It's a great name. Thanks. It's very catchy. Thank tell you. Us, tell us a little bit about then the journey of, because you started this, you know, while you were drinking a little bit and, and using. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the journey of your sobriety and like where it took you and what was the catalyst for change? Yeah, I have to be one of, and I'm sure I'm not because I don't want to get stuck in uniqueness, but I have to be one of the most stubborn people when it comes to getting sober. I just like the stair step approach. Like, let me quit meth. Then I'll quit this, then I'll quit cocaine, <laughs> you know, then I'll quit Adderall, right. then I'll quit drinking. So, um, you know, starting Cornbread Hustle and building Cornbread Hustle, to say the least, was very difficult trying to navigate adversity for other people when my own life was in chaos. But since I lived in a pit house on the 28th floor and had money, and was in some pretty influential circles, there was no way you were going to convince me I had a problem. So 
I was just continuously um, doing that whole psych, that toxic cycle of codependency and helping people that didn't, I don't like the word deserve, but didn't earn it and enabling people and being their friends instead of their accountability. Um, so it was just, you know, nothing really bad happened throughout, you know, my bad leadership. But I will say that there were probably a lot of people that could have been in a different place today had I been a stronger leader and the company would have done something more than it did the first three years. It was like a hamster wheel. If anything, it was just a bunch of PR and um, getting people jobs enough to barely put food on the table. And sometimes the company would lose money. Okay. But then there came, I guess, when I really had my wake-up call, I got a DWI. And being in handcuffs as the founder of a staffing agency for second chances, right. that kind of seemed oh boy. not cool. <laughs> and, uh, but that didn't stop me, y'all. Um, I got the breathalyzer on my car, and I got on probation. And I was like, okay. I had to, I started doing the justification thing. I was like, everybody drinks and drives. I just happen to be caught. And it's unfortunate that I happen to be the founder of a staffing agency for second chances. Not my fault. Shit happens to people. So I'm going to control my drinking from now on. <laughs> so hmm. I um, tried that. And... You know, I drank a lot less for that entire year. That would be 2018, all of 2018. I, it's almost I drank like a, proves to yourself, like, look, I, I don't have a problem. I can still I know, I did. But, the, you know, I drink like once a month. So I would say I drank like 10 to 12 times in all of 2018, which is insane compared to my everyday drinking. So I did think I started to have it under control, but the issue was every time I did drink, I woke up the next day depressed, almost suicidal, anxiety, yeah. not remembering the night before. So after a year of having those, okay, not worth it, um, controlled drinking attempts, I finally woke up on Christmas morning one morning and it was the last controlled drinking attempt that I had. My car was parked out front. The breathalyzer was still in it. The family knew that I had the breathalyzer in my car and they're like, enjoy the night, you know, have some drinks. It's okay. You've already been on probation for a year. Like you're going to be fine. And so I drank my favorite, which is Red Bull and vodka and Drank a lot really fast because my plan was get drunk fast and then drink water the rest of the night. And so I great actually plan. I know that's a great plan. I, <laughs> I actually I actually did. I drank a whole 12 pack of Topo Chico the rest of the night and even sat there and judged my family for how stupid they looked because of how drunk they got. Right. And I was like, ha. Huh. I beat it. I'm yeah, going to right. be sober. Everybody's drunk. Hallelujah. And I went to bed, even though I thought I was completely sober and felt great about myself. And I woke up and I had depression, anxiety, guilt, and shame. And I got up out of the bed and I walked into the living room and I turned down the mimosas or Bloody Marys or whatever they were having. And I said, and I think I'm done for a while. And I just said, I, I did not say because I have a problem. I might have started to hint at it, but I said more so, I don't think my, I think it's not good for my, I have a chemical imbalance. <laughs> I thought maybe like. Which uh -uh, is true, like, right? I mean. Yeah. yeah I was just like, yeah. so maybe I realized when Christmas morning I'm allergic to alcohol. I just didn't understand what it, why or how. And so I, um, New Year's Eve came around and that was really hard for me, even though my whole life I never drank on New Year's Eve because that was my way to prove I wasn't an alcoholic. I'll drink every day of the year, but not New Year's Eve. Right. But <laughs> since, 
since I was trying not to drink, I really wanted to drink this time. So I went to church, even though I didn't go to church and I didn't want anything to do with church. I went because I needed something to do um, to kill the time. And long story short, I never missed another Sunday of church after that. And the Holy Spirit moved and I um, just, I still am sober since Christmas morning on 2018. Wow. Yeah. That's a, first of all, that's a cool sober day to have is Christmas. I know that I hope I keep it. <laughs> I always you think will. to myself, if I relapse, I'll probably wait till the next Christmas so I don't have to ruin my date, which is stupid. That's uh, the way an addict would think. Right. But. No, I, I have a cool one too. Mine's New Year's Eve. So I, oh, I, yeah. I get it. And I, I get what you're saying completely. But you know, one wow, day- you must have really been desperate and like really wanting to quit because not many people quit on New Year's Eve. I wish <laughs> that was New the Year's case. Day. No, I wish that was the case. <laughs> Honestly, I planned on going through New Year's. It was my family had other plans though. Oh, okay. So yeah, he that, got scooped up that morning. <laughs> I got woken up with a by my brother and my father with a drug test in hand, mm. and uh, basically, uh, you're going to treatment today. Oh wow, intervention style. Intervention style, which it worked well, though. Sherry. Sherry, it's, it's kind of, you know, remarkable to me, like how our addiction, like how you're, it's not about like how much we're drinking or using, like how your addiction, like allowed you to feel like you had moments of control and like how mm-hmm. you could wait and in, in between, but it was like when you drank, how you felt the next day and like what it did to you inside, you mm-hmm. know, I can relate a lot to that part, like towards the end for me, um, like when I was pregnant with my son, you know, when I was very minimally drinking, it was just, I was able to keep it at bay, but what it was doing to me inside was just far mm-hmm. worse than when I was constantly messed up, you know? So exactly, just interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really speaks to that. This disease is more about our thinking and the, our relationship with substances, as opposed to like the amount that we're using, like, like you were just saying, Amanda, it's really more about what it did for you every time you drank and the, the results of it the day afterwards and how it made you feel about yourself and your self-esteem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you, so what shifted for you when you, um, like in your, in your company? So when you got sober, like what, what shifted and what changed and like what kind of, you know, hurdles did you overcome and things like that? Wow. Everything changed. So I will say that, Oh man, I I can honestly say I keep thinking things are going to get easier because I get more sober -er. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it doesn't, it's like new challenges. So at first, when I first got sober, my company was negative like three grand in the bank and I had, I had nowhere to live. I was basically homeless. I, a family took me in. Um, I finally, I think right when I got sober, a few months after I got sober, I got my apartment and I had nothing but a lawn chair in the living room. And all I, I bought $40 sticky notes. Cause they were like those giant ones. I remember they were four, they were 35 something because it was the only money I had. And I bought them because I wanted to put my whole plan on how am I going to bounce back from this? Cause I did it before when I came, got clean from that, um, starting from scratch. So I was like, that's all I had in my apartment was like a mattress, a lawn chair, and those sticky sticky notes notes on my wall (laughs) the giant sticky notes on my wall that said here's I reverse engineered my plan my one-year plan so in one year I want to have an x amount in the bank I want to have this this and that and so I broke it down into what are the small things I can do over the next 12 months and hit those milestones and goals and you know it it's it was hard. It's, I'm trying to think like, which is more challenging. I think they're both equally challenging, having a growing and thriving and amazing life in sobriety and managing that and making the right decisions while staying sober versus having nothing at all and starting from scratch and trying to stay sober. That's hard too. Cause it's like, I don't have anything. You think you don't have anything to lose anyway, and you're already at your rock bottom. So sometimes it's really hard to keep that motivation to stay sober. Now I have a lot of motivation because there's a lot to lose. 
Um, but I think I was so desperate. I knew I was going to die because I, I had become suicidal and I just knew it was either go through this hard stuff of figuring out how to get your life back on track while staying sober or die. And death did sound pretty good at the time, to be honest with you, because it it was just, it was so hard to face. Like, how did I go from living in a penthouse, being on the Steve Harvey show and like feeling like I had accomplished something, even though I hadn't, because I was really destroying myself, but I tricked myself into thinking that I, I had it going on to having nothing but a lawn chair and sticky notes, you know? And I still, at that time, still, even after I got sober, I still blamed other people, places, and things for my situation, not the drink. I I just, you know, the drink just happened to be part of the story. Um, You know, I, I finally, as I started to grow the company, so what's changed? Um, I make hires differently. Well, I'm actually able to hire because I have money. (laughs) Um, I, I, you guys know, because I believe you're both in recovery, you just have little patience for toxic environment, whether it be family, friends, or coworkers, because, right. you know, for me, and something I'm still working on, I've played victim my entire life, and people please, and care what people think about me, and all that, so I've done a lot of keeping people around me that I shouldn't have for longer than I needed to. Now I know that my life is at risk. And when I don't want to be affected by other people that could cause me to drink. So the main thing that I would say that's different about my business is number one, we're doing really well now and we're growing so fast. My head's spinning. So I'm having to make a lot of hires and really quickly and scale and trying to do that with my recovery in mind and also staying in leadership because every single one of my employees, every single one is in recovery from meth addiction. So it's, oh, wow. it's yeah, and alcoholism. So it's very important for me to lead the company in the right direction because, you know, I'm not perfect. I have a lot of character defects like stress and anxiety, and sometimes I carry that with me at work. So I think the biggest thing that's changed for me now in my company is just lots of mental health awareness in the workplace. Before, I was more of the best way I could describe it is like the Wolf of Wall Street guy, where it's yeah. just, you know, um, white, yeah, white knuckle everything and just win, 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 vein right. popping out of your neck all the time. And so, you know, I still have that personality, but minus the substance abuse. So I have to make sure that I'm pausing every day, getting to my recovery meetings and keeping in mind that this is the environment that we're in. And I have to lead my company in a way that is just just knowing mental health awareness. So that's what's changed in my company. I'm very strict on a lot of things now when before I cared more about having friends than holding people accountable. So we know that like your company helps give people second. Can you explain like your mission and just kind of for anyone that's listening, like exactly what the cornbread hustle is and like how, why, you know, we understand why you started it and how it shifted. Mm -hmm. I'd love for our listeners to like know exactly like what your mission is. Yeah, that would probably be good. Right. So it's a staffing agency for second chances. So basically um, anybody coming out of prison or anybody in recovery, If they're having a hard time getting a job because of that blemish on their record, I advocate for them. So we have companies that are literally paying us money and really good money. We we charge just as much, if not more, as regular staffing agencies um, that don't work with felons. So we we actually um we are the middle person between the employee and the employer, and we're saying, hey. Here's what they did while they were in prison. Here's how long they've been out. Here's what the charge is. Here's why I think they'd make a great asset to the team. And we just, we really help employers understand that second chance hiring can be very beneficial because these people usually become loyal. And, you know, especially for the people like me, when one is never enough, 
yeah, we may not be, we may suck at trying to have one dream, but that means one is never enough in every area in our life. So some, once we rechannel that energy, we become really great employees because it's never enough. We're always reaching that next goal or milestone. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, you know, we, we either do direct hire where the company will pay us a percentage of the annual salary to find, you know, say it's a hundred thousand dollar job. A company will pay us up to 20 grand to find somebody that needs that second chance that has the experience that they're looking for. Um, or that's amazing. It's, yeah. It's, I know. They're so open I to can't that. believe that. Well, I love it, took it. Four years of me flapping my jaws. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. That's for sure. Right. And, so there's a um, lot of advocacy on your part, I imagine, to get people to do that. Is there any other incentive for an organization to hire somebody in the second chance situation? There is. There is. It's called the work opportunity tax credit. So basically, if somebody is within a year of being released from prison or a year of conviction, then they get up to $9,600 tax credit for that person. Oh, wow. That they hired. Yeah. A lot of people don't take advantage of that, though. None of our clients really do that I know of. They just, you know, people struggle right now. Organizations struggle with turnover and job hopping and no loyalty. And so as long as a lot of our companies are faith-based, so it's a great environment for, you know, our individuals. But once these companies understand that they're high. Like I, I just sent an email before I got on this call with you guys to a company advocating for somebody who has a murder charge. So I wrote wow. out in the whole email, he was 18. Here's what happened that night. They gave him 11 years and well, they gave him 12 years. He spent 11 years and eight months. He's 35 years old right now. He's been out for the last five years. I mentored him in prison seven years ago. I know he's great. I know you guys don't normally take first degree felonies or assault charges, but I'm advocating for this one. Can we bring him in and see if we can start opening the gate for the first degree felonies? So a lot of our companies will start with, mm, let's just have a nonviolent drug crime. And I'm like, okay. And then once they start seeing the loyalty, because think about it, if they give this guy who has a murder charge a chance, you think he's really going to go job hop? I mean, no, where? that no. makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. They're going to do anything they can to make sure that they keep that job. So yeah, really, really like if it. they, if they look at the numbers, so at first on the surface, it seems like, okay, we're going to pay a company money for somebody who has a murder conviction. That sounds crazy at first, but dig a little deeper and realize that that person is probably going to be there for the next 20 years. Cause he doesn't want to go get rejected by a hundred other companies because of his charge, how much money are they saving because they're not going to have any turnover in that position and the guy is going to be loyal and he's on parole for the rest of his life and doesn't really want to go back to prison. I'm sure you're having conversations. I'm sure you're having conversations (laughs) all the time about how expensive turnover is and how Mm -hmm. important loyalty is. I think, I mean, I I've done some advocacy work in just the general corporate environment talking about, substance abuse policies that if somebody let's say has a substance use disorder at work instead of firing the person helping the person to get help mm-hmm. and, and get the, the the help that they need and then allowing them to come back you're actually creating a long-term loyal employee that's going to want to that's going to have so much respect for you for helping them and so much love and gratitude for you as very smart somebody then you're going to have to pay somebody else and you're going to have to pay for all the turnover costs and all of these and you can't guarantee it's a good employee it's just it's crazy but very a lot of companies smart. don't have the foresight to see how much money this is costing them they just say just say we don't want to deal with it get rid of the person hire somebody new not to take the host mic away but question what does that look like for an employer if they do want to get one of their employees in treatment? Because we've had employees relapse and we went back, not at the workplace. They didn't do it at the workplace, but like we've had employees call us after a weekend of binge drinking and saying, I'm so sorry, I need to get help. Like usually they actually come back and admit to us because they know they can talk to us. 
And we'll go back to the client and say, hey, FYI, so-and-so relapsed this weekend. He's going to come back to work, but he needs a few personal days. And nine times out of 10, the employer's like, oh my God, what can we do to help? Or that's okay. We understand. Like they've never been disgruntled over it. Wow. They've always been like super. You're creating a new culture. You're creating a new culture. (laughs) Well, the reason, the reason why though, is because they've seen how good the person works and they started to build empathy and they've seen the change. This particular guy who had relapsed, he actually went out on a crack binge. They had kept emailing me for the last three months saying, this employee is so amazing. He found money twice and has turned it back in. He has so much integrity. We can't believe it. Like they could not believe that a felon has like more integrity and more work ethic than everyone else in the workplace. So when I emailed them and said, Hey, he relapsed this weekend. They were not at all. If anything, they were super sad, like shed tears for him because they want him to do well you know? Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. And that's incredible. And I, and I wish more organizations looked at people that way as a person who has a, a, an issue and struggling and how can we help as opposed to it's a lot of times it's just a blanket statement of, you know, okay, they have a substance use disorder. We can't trust them. Get them out of here. But what can a company do, especially if it's a temp worker? Like what is it? If I were to call next level and say, Hey, can we send a guy to you guys or can we set up a guy to have some recovery coaching with you and the company will pay for it? What does that look like? And I, th- I mean, I think it's a conversation we could definitely have. That's a long, there's a few things. Yeah. But, there's a few things to do. You can I, either get them. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Blake. No, no, no. <laughs> but I, I will say like the first thing that an organization should do is to be open to it, to having a discussion and an education session or a presentation, mm-hmm. somebody come in and educate them on the disease of addiction, help them understand it better first. Because I think the first thing that we have to do, no matter what, in any situation is, is to break down the stigma. I've actually done a lot of this in Dallas. I, I was called out to Dallas. There's a company out there um, that used me to, to come out and do presentations. for. They, they work for a bunch of different companies and had me come out and do presentations for their companies. That's awesome. But um, the, I think the first thing that we have to do is break down that stigma and help all of the employees and the leadership, most importantly, understand mm-hmm. the disease. And then specifically of how they can help them really looks different for every company and, and is depends on the company, if they have an employee assistance program, mm-hmm. uh, depends how knowledgeable the HR is. But I do think that it's okay to have a conversation with somebody who is struggling and say, we want to support you. You know, you can't keep using or you can't stay on this path any longer um, and be employed here and continue using. But Mm -hmm. we're not, we're not, we don't want to fire you. We want to be able to help you. So let's figure out a plan to put forward that we can get you better and get you back to work in your full capacity. That's the conversation. And that's why I love what you do, Amanda. That's the conversation that I want everyone to be having more. Um, and, and you hit the nail right on the head, having an education session for employees as well, because a lot of times there's happy hours, there's events, there's all kinds of things. And people just are, just simply uneducated about the disease of addiction. And, you know, people aren't, people aren't bad people. So they, if people understood more what others may be going through in that kind of environment, it wouldn't be pushed on you so hard, or there'd be other options. Like give me a chicken finger, man. I don't need these drink tickets, you know? Right. Um, Right. But you know, it, I've struggled writing in my journal for five years about my addiction and never voicing it to anybody. Had I worked for a company that had an education seminar and they said, if anybody anonymously wants help, we will pay for it. I would have been a hundred percent on board with that. And it would have, Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, I'm just saying, I, I think that, and a lot of people don't know they have a problem. I didn't know I had a problem exactly. until I was forced to go to DWI education and see the stats and the signs of this means you have a problem. How did I have a problem? I, I had a lot of money, you know? I didn't right. think. I thought people with a problem are homeless, which I did become homeless. Or under a bridge <laughs> and a stereotypical. Yeah. Right, right. 
Yeah. And that's why I really think it helps. The first part of it is just getting a conversation started in the workplace, not just with the HR team or not just with leadership, but for all of the employees of having this conversation and really just breaking that initial ice that this is something that's okay to talk about guys. And then providing that education. That was part of my presentation actually, because there's a certain point where I'm like, okay, I'm realizing everybody in this room who drinks is probably thinking, Oh my God, do I have a problem? Well, here's the criteria. Let me explain to you what a substance use disorder looks like. Let me explain to you that it's on a spectrum that people have different issues and depending, you know, it could be from mild to severe and really explained how the disease works and how the diagnosis works and what the symptoms are so that people can understand. And of course, related my own story to it as well of like, listen, I was never under a bridge. I was, I was always fine money wise. It's not really about that necessarily. It's about hitting an emotional place where it's no longer working for you, but you can't stop on your own. Yep, exactly. So this, we went way over our time, which is awesome. <laughs> Because this conversation is good. good. And you great. got me talking about something I'm passionate about. So I appreciate you <laughs> doing that. No, we should do more stuff. And I'd love for you guys to come out once this corona, because I hate virtual stuff. I just do. But once this uh, coronavirus stuff ends, we do a lot of HR workshops out here. And I would be delighted to figure out what it would cost or see what we can collaborate on for you guys to come out here and help educate more of our HR leaders on addiction in the workplace and how common it is. And nine times out of 10, the HR people themselves sitting in the rooms are like, mm, maybe that's me. Right. <laughs> so, Seriously. Um, yeah. yeah, I would love that. And honestly, I have a good time whenever I do the presentations. Like I, I get everybody up and dancing to start off as an icebreaker. So like, We'll have a good time doing it too. It's not just a stale like Bill Nye up there. Not Bill Nye. Who's that other guy? Uh, who? Wh- who's that guy? Like uh, Bueller? What's that guy's name? I don't know. Right, Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> no, the guy. Uh, never mind. Ben Stein. I know what. Oh, ben Stein. I know what you're talking about. That if you have dry eyes. Yeah, Ben Stein is his name. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's not a presentation like that. It's. Uh, I try to have some fun with it and and make it relatable and have a good time with it, so that people really open up to it. Mm-hmm. No, I love cool it. I love it. Up if they want to. The coolest love thing that it. I ever had happen was that I. This was my first presentation too, and it ended up. It was at a tech firm in New York City that ends up being like. 150 people show up to this. And I'm like, oh, crap. (laughs) A big point that I make in this is the importance of vulnerability, but vulnerability is never going to work. Like a a lower level employee is most likely not going to speak up about their problems, whether it's with them or somebody at home. Mm -hmm. If somebody in leadership doesn't take the lead first and say, and, and really set that precedent to make sure it's okay, And right after I say that, the CFO of the company raises his hand and admits, he goes, guys, just so you know, when I was away for two weeks, I wasn't on vacation. I was actually in treatment and I just celebrated 90 days sober and pulls out his coin. And I'm like, wow, that gave me goosebumps. Yeah. I I didn't even know what to do. I just gave the guy a hug. I'm like, this is incredible. This is what it's about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's Which then pretty it was powerful. Like dominoes, and then all these people start raising their hand. Oh, my mother struggled. Oh, I've struggled, or you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was. It was so cool. Right, it opens up that safe door. You know, yeah. it should I be a safe it. thing for people to talk about. It shouldn't be, you know. But I think that the thing, the work that you are doing, the work that we're doing, I think that we're trying to normalize it and make it more. You know, remove the stigma. Forget about breaking the stigma. You know, letting people have a safe place. Um, and feel safe to talk about what they need to and get the help that they need without like losing their job or getting judged or being Mm -hmm. defined by their past, you know? Exactly. So before we get off, we do have one final segment that we're kind of throwing on you, Sherry, that um, we do at the end of every single episode and it's called let it out. And obviously we all face these major life adversities in our life. Everybody's had them. But every day we also face small little adversities that just bother us and they, they can become like that pent up stress that if we don't let it out, it can really eat at us. So I want this to be the chance for the three of us to be able to let something out that is bothering us today that we just want to get off of our chest. So Amanda, if you want to take it away, set the example yeah, sure. 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 Yeah. I mean, uh, who, ca- who I mean, I think in the 2020, I think we could all have like a long list of little annoyances mm-hmm. or big annoyances. 
Um, today I'm going to let out, um, like people verbally vomiting, you know, their beliefs and things like that on social media. It's like, you're not going to, one, you're not going to change anybody else's mind on social media. So to be like this big bully on social media, trying to like attack people in that manner, there's just so much of it. And it's so ugly. It's like, if you want to, if you want people to, to like follow what you believe in, there's definitely other ways to go about it. And then there's also like, people are allowed to have their own beliefs and respect one another, you know? So I just think we've really lost that in this country. And we have a lot of social media warriors who, who seem to like, you know, let it out in all the wrong ways. So that's my let it out is like, get a therapist, don't verbally vomit on Facebook. Um, don't attack people because they think differently than you, you know, um, we're different and that's, you know, we're allowed to have the thoughts and beliefs that we have. So mind your business people. Mm-hmm. With that, I with that I pass it on to you, Sherry. What would you like to let out? Oh yeah, my let out um, is I still struggle very badly with caring what people think about me as much as you wouldn't think because <laughs> I put all my crap out there. But um, I I care a lot about. Oh, I I should put it a different way. I take on other people's feelings as my oh. own responsibility and. Uh-huh. Yeah, total Al-Anon candidate here. Um, <laughs> I need to check that out at some point. But um, I get, and Amanda, you could probably relate to this. I'll finally try, I'll never catch up on my LinkedIn inbox. But when, <laughs> no. I, start go, when I start going through some messages, it's like somebody's fighting with themselves um, because they're like, all right, then you don't care. Screw you. Or why don't you just go have a drink? You know, but you, you know, like people, you know, just think expecting that I owe them something because I'm raw and transparent on social media and I'm supposed to just be there to answer when they need me to. And sometimes that bothers me deep down inside and other days I just delete and ignore, but some days if I'm having a bad day, it can like kind of reroute my mood. Yeah, me and Blake have a um, an ongoing text thread of the insanity of the LinkedIn mm-hmm. inbox. It's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. I, I hate to say this, but I think people are like specifically sexist on LinkedIn sometimes too. I'm not mm-hmm. generalizing with LinkedIn, but I think that they they have this like this like freedom that they think they have to just send mm-hmm. whatever they want to women, and then if they don't yes. answer, they just get extremely aggressive. It's like this yes. sense of male entitlement which I, mm-hmm. I apologize on the behalf of my, my, my species here. Yeah, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Amanda, but I think because we're vulnerable and talk about, you know, our addictions, people sometimes see that as a weakness and brokenness and daddy issue type thing. So they think that they can get away with just messaging you and talking to you like you're some stripper or something. Right. And it just blows my mind. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it happens to all women, not just women who are open about their meth addictions. But sometimes I wonder if I bring it on because of my openness and transparency. No, I think they're just disgusting. (laughs) That makes sense. I just think that you guys are, unfortunately, you put yourself out there more, you're just more accessible. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that people think Mm -hmm. that because you're open, that they can be open with their disgustingness to you. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, what it reminds me of is like the guys who hit on girls in the gym because the girls are wearing <laughs> yeah. like s- smaller outfit or something like mm-hmm. that. And they think right. that that means that they can go up to them and hit on them. Mm-hmm. Right. Leave exactly. them alone. Let them do their thing. Yeah. It's so like what's your letter out, Blake? Oh yeah. Um, what are you trying hi. to avoid here? Um, <laughs> no, honestly, I, I was going to say exactly what she said. I'm tired of guys hitting on me. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, my honestly, my thing is is very similar to you, Sherry, of that um, it's just a sense of people pleasing sometimes that I think comes out the more stressed I am. It's like I go back to uh, old character defects, which is common. And with, you know, with our with people with our, our past. And I do think that I'm having a lot of the same things. And I do have that same that same issue sometimes where. I really take on other people's stress and I get really involved when I I shouldn't be as emotionally involved as I am. And I, part of me Mm -hmm. justifies it by saying that that's what makes me good at my job. And then at the same time, 
I'm like, no, but it's unhealthy for me. And if I keep going down this path, I'm not going to be able to help people mm-hmm. the same way. So I, I have to learn to balance that. Um, and insecurities about what other people think of me is, is certainly a big one. Um, you know, we had a, a news interview yesterday that's airing. I saw that. And like, for some reason, I feel like I should be more excited for it, but more than anything, I'm just nervous. And it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I shouldn't be. I should be excited and not really care. Yeah. I'm more worried about how I'm going to appear. Oh, which I was yeah, going to say, you're, you're, am- you're amazing. Your voice sounds so familiar. I was going to ask if you've ever been on intervention because your voice sounds like one of the interventionists. One of our friends is on there, but yeah, not no, us. Not me. Oh, okay. I've done plenty of interventions. <laughs> cool. Well, I hope that we stay connected, guys. I'm sure there's a lot yes, we can do definitely. together. And, I mean, we could do all kinds of different fun things and Zooms and video chats. I mean, we're both trying to run our business, so who has time for that? But I'm open if you guys ever have anything you want to collaborate on because I'm, you know, I'll learn from you guys. You guys have a lot of years under your belt, and well, I'm still trying to navigate this thing. Yeah, we'll we'll learn from each other. We're you know that's how we you grow. I feel you got to stay open minded, and I can learn so mm-hmm. much from you, and and you can learn from us. You know, it's a two way mm-hmm. street for sure. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, awesome. thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. It was awesome talking to you. We don't usually no go for an hour, but you were, it was so cool talking to you that we couldn't help it. Uh, no problem. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah, you're great. Thank you so much, Sherry. All right. Thanks. Bye, guys. And bye, hon. Bye-bye. And anybody else out there who's listening to us who wants to be a guest or thinks that they have a guest that'd be awesome for our show, shoot us an email at overcomingadversitypodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on LinkedIn personally. Um, really, you can find us any way you want and let us know a little bit about your story so we can uh, we can hop on that. And have your own let it out find one of our social media posts and let it out on there as long as it's not about us definitely and you know this where our podcast is sponsored by us at next level recovery associates we are interventionists recovery coaches life coaches sober companions we do educational presentations and we are here to support all your recovery needs so we're grateful to sponsor our podcast Awesome. Thank you, everyone. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.